Welcome to the We Go There podcast. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... Exactly. We go there. Because no topic should be too taboo, especially when it comes to women's health. We ask the questions you may be too afraid to ask and interview the experts to get the answers you need. So we're doing this completely unfiltered. 100%. Okay, let's go there. So today we are thrilled to welcome expert physiotherapist and mama of four, Grania Donnelly, all the way in Northern Ireland. Grania is joining us today to share with us a lot more of information that we really need to know about returning to running postpartum, as well as all of the research that she's doing on the biopsychosocial, that's a big word, aspects of care. So basically, you know, what is it that we can do to really improve our recovery from pregnancy and delivery. So before I put too many words in your mouth, Grania, welcome. Thank you for being here, especially with your four children under seven. Oh, I know. Thank you so much for having me, Lexi and Nikki. I'm so honored to be on your podcast. And yes, just um, uh, full disclosure, my kids are not present in the house at the minute. So for <laughs> anyone who has kids, they will understand it's impossible to have a conversation with anyone when you've more than one kid in the house. So yes, I have a very good childminder, thankfully. It's very impressive. And we just, before we jumped on here, we're just gushing around how much we love Irish accents. I'm a sucker (laughs) for an accent. And this is just going to be beautiful for everyone to listen to and informative. So we're so happy to have you here. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your impressive background and also sort of your story of getting into this field? And, you know, I think that you've got so much to talk about. So let's start there. Yeah, so a lot of people wonder how I got into being a pelvic health physiotherapist. And many people out there don't even realize that physiotherapists specialize in this area. It's it's all, as I often say to people, that we're the Chandler Bing of physiotherapy because we get up and go to work, but nobody really understands what we do. But my journey started quite young into my career. Um, Probably two years after I qualified, I got the opportunity to rotate through a maternity hospital I tried to swap out of it. I was in that stage. I wanted to be the next sports physiotherapist. And I went kicking and screaming almost to that rotation. And that's where I ended up getting my career path changed because I loved it. I realized that it's essentially musculoskeletal and sports physiotherapy, but for a specific region. And I realized how underserved it was. So I specialized early in my career when a lot of my peers couldn't understand why I was taking this journey or line. And I've never regretted it since. Um, and the further I went into my journey and then experienced my own pregnancies and deliveries and female experiences, I've become very passionate about developing the research base because Full disclosure, there's not a lot of research out there on females in general, but particularly when we look at the perinatal population, so women who are pregnant and postpartum. And I started doing some research in returning to running postpartum and particularly looking at what all factors influence that. So not just the physical factors, what are the biopsychosocial factors that influence it? I've also a huge research interest in diastasis. So diastasis is abdominal muscle separation that often occurs with pregnancy. So I've done some research in that as well. And yeah, I'm happy to discuss any of those. Oh, all of them. And so I'm the one who does not know the pelvic floor like you and Nikki. 
And so biopsychosocial factors, we need to get into that. So what does it mean? Like, can you just kind of break that down for everyone? Yeah, so it's a big word and it can sound very scientific and complicated, but it's really a way of describing looking at the whole person. So not just looking at one element of them. I think as human beings, we're we're a really amazing human creature. Um, and if you think about it, we have psychological factors, we've lots of physical factors, and then again, our social circumstances and our day-to-day interactions all come together to really influence our overall health and well-being. So when it comes to, say, for example, returning to running, it's not just about the physical ability and muscle strength to be able to run. It's also about how are we feeling in ourselves in terms of our mental well-being? How much sleep have we got? And if we think of postpartum women, how many women are getting a full night's sleep? Not too many. And we want to even just think about things like social circumstances, because one of the things that we know from the research is that women who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds actually have less access to information. So they're not even getting the basic fundamental um, information and education about health. So anyone who's in the field as a health uh, or fitness professional has a real duty of care to make sure that they're reaching all women and not just those who are more in more privileged positions to access it. So that biopsychosocial is really a whole systems look at someone. And that's what I'm quite passionate about. So fascinating. It's it's so important to talk about, and I'm learning it more and more because I'm a bit of, I try to be a bit of a nerd here as well. So I'm learning it. It's a word that keeps popping up again and again. And, and, you know, you know, my mentor Sinead, your friends, you're both researchers. You're both Sinead. I love. (laughs) Um, Anyhow. um, So, can you explain? So we, let's just go and talk about Lexi for a second. Lexi, you don't mind, right? No, Lexi no. has <laughs> she's being she she has experienced, um, you know, leaking with running, running especially after baby number two, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that I think is interesting, and I know Lexi agree. Why is it that two people who have this similar starting point postpartum, so say they both go to see someone for an internal vaginal exam for their pelvic floor PT, and they're both told, you know, your pelvic floor is a two out of five, and you need to work on this. And why is it that those two women who have sort of a similar starting point can have vastly different results? One of them stops leaking and improves their diastasis, and the other one doesn't. So is that biopsychosocial factors? Yeah, that's a great question and a really nice way to apply it because it's already highlighting that we need to look at each individual separately and there's no way of boxing women into a one-size-fits-all or by this number of weeks postpartum, you're going to be symptom-free and ready to go back to exercise because it just doesn't work that way. So many factors feed into it. Um, One could be birth experience. So did you have a vaginal delivery or an abdominal delivery? Because both are going to have their own associated levels of trauma. And there's going to be different degrees to that, particularly with vaginal deliveries. If you had an assisted delivery and um, and required quite a lot of stitches, or if you had an obstetric anal sphincter injury, that's going to be a very different starting point than someone else who also was down as a vaginal delivery, but didn't even have a graze. So there can be very different starting points in terms of tissue trauma. Then you have to feed into all those factors like how much sleep are they getting? What's their nutrition like? Are they eating well enough to really encourage that healing process in their body? And 
there's a there's a term called relative energy deficiency in sport that's red s and it's it sounds like a complicated term again i'm coming out with them all but it's really a term that's used within sports medicine predominantly and it's normally associated with females who are really high performance athletes who may expend more energy than they create but what we're starting to understand more and more of is that postpartum women are actually at risk of this because let's think of pregnancy delivery motherhood as a bit of an endurance event so it's constantly expending energy if you're not getting enough sleep not getting enough nutrition if you're stressed and you know you've a lot going on trying to keep the house and you've multiple kids and there could be other medical things going on you may be expending more energy than you are creating through exercise and say getting back to running into that equation that may not be the most appropriate time for you to start your return to higher impact exercise because you're going to deplete that battery even more and the negative or the serious things about relative energy deficiency in sport is that it affects other body systems such as our menstrual health and also our bone health so it's really important that we make sure women are aware of the importance of having reserves in terms of their energy levels in their body. So those are the type of factors that can affect overall healing and symptoms. Um, Does that answer your question, Nikki? Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to to say too, I mean, I was at the park yesterday and I ran into someone, which was hilarious because she's like, I recognize you from Instagram. So it was a bit of a (laughs) weird moment, but I know. And we were, she's a neighbor. She had a five week old and a three-year-old and a dog at the park. And I was like, you're amazing. But anyways, um, we were chatting and, and she said that she was, after she delivered her first we were talking about prolapse and she started asking me questions because she has a grade two prolapse. And she said, I was doing all these hit classes and I was like, I just want to be jumping. I want to lose the baby weight. And it all happened after her first child. Like she was doing it at four weeks postpartum and she was filled with all this regret. And she's like, I'm really worried now. Like I damaged myself. And there's a lot of blame that women can feel because, you know, they didn't have the information and now she blames herself for this prolapse. So there's so much that needs to be discussed as well in terms of, you know, how soon is too soon? What are some things, a lot of women listening to this are going to be probably similar to the woman I met yesterday in the park who are like, I just want to get back to the exercise that used to make me feel good and make me feel strong and fit. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a great point because as health and fitness professionals, we want to get all you women back to exercise. Exercise is really important for overall health and well-being. So we don't want to restrict people particularly because when we enter motherhood, especially for the first time, there's a real shift in identity. Um, Life can get turned upside down for the woman in particular. You know, the guys still tend to go back out to work and their life is largely the same as it was beforehand. For women, it's a huge shift and that can have both physical and psychological um, compromises. But We need to also make women aware that they do need to respect the healing process for the body. And if we consider pregnancy, it takes 10 months to create a baby. You have to be realistic in terms of what the recovery process is going to be like. And in 2019, I linked up with Emma Brockwell, who's a fellow pelvic health physiotherapist, and Tom Goom, who's a sports physiotherapist in the UK. And because there was no official guidance to support women in returning to higher impact exercise, we did a scope and review of the literature. And what we found was that actually the healing process for the pelvic floor tissues following a vaginal delivery or the abdominal wall muscles following a cesarean section delivery goes well beyond that six-week time scale that is the traditional concept of the six-week 
postpartum check. Now, I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but do you find that there's this preconception that you're going to be six weeks postpartum oh, and suddenly yeah. you're going to be wake up and you're automatically recovered? Everywhere. Yeah, it's crazy. That's oh. It's like back on it the horse everywhere. and exercise and all the things. And especially in COVID, a lot of people haven't gotten an actual in-person six-week week post-checkup. It's like a video consult and saying like, yep, you're good kind of thing. And yeah. that gives them the idea that they can go back to all the things. Yeah. And that's a scary concept because if we... Re- if we translate that and think to a sports person who gets a bit of a ligament ligament strain on their knee on the field, they generally have a period of rehab mm-hmm. and then like a whole return to play process. Whereas women are having pregnancies, going through traumatic deliveries, and then being t- basically back to porridge on Monday when they have to go home and look after the kids and do all the ironing and everything and laundry. Like I just sometimes think that we need to start giving women the same consideration as we give to sports medicine and. A lot of the stuff we're finding in our research is really aligning with finding the sports medicine. So even one of the most um, significant findings in the recent research study with Dr. Izzy Moore um, on biopsychosocial multidisciplinary factors impacting returning to running in women, we found that fear of movement was a huge factor that impacted a woman's likelihood to return to run. So women are actually quite afraid of moving. They're afraid of doing something wrong. They don't know, will this be okay? Will this give me a prolapse? They don't know how to return. And that breeds fear. And fear means that then they either restrict how they move or they pull back from it altogether. And that's something we need to change. Right. So, or they're tense, more tense, right? So when you're yeah. running, then you're feeling more tense because you're scared. So interesting. Yeah. And like what that means is that, so when we talk about how do you return to run then, that six-week time frame following having a baby is really important, but it's not a time to just sit and do nothing and not move and wait till that day that you wake up that you're fully healed. It's a time to use to start to grade into exercise. So grade into movement. That might be building up walking. That might be focused pelvic floor exercises because we know that all women, no matter what type of delivery you have had, will have reconditioning needs at the pelvic floor because it has been loaded and stretched during that pregnancy. There will be further trauma if someone has a vaginal delivery delivery and so it needs reconditioned so it's it's a time to build up functional activities and we have to be very sensible in how we grade women back to exercise because there's no point us telling them to rest up for those immediate weeks when they're going to be squatting lifting children doing housework and they're doing functional elements of exercise anyway so I think it's all about using those six weeks as a nice reconditioning but not deciding at six weeks, right, I'm going to hit the roads running because running's high impact. And we know that it has something like uh, either 1.6 to 3.2 times someone's body weight and ground reaction force. And we need to really start to prepare the pelvic floor for that. And to come back to your earlier question about two women who have the same starting point, they may have the same muscle strength, They may have both had a vaginal delivery and they may go running and have very different outcomes. One might be leaking, one might be symptom-free. And that could be because of the coordination or the response or how quick the pelvic floor is responding because every time our feet hit the ground, our heel strikes the floor, there's an associated pelvic floor contraction. So all of that is a nice um, rhythmical response to how we move. And if that's not able to function to the demand of that load, well, then there's more rehabilitation needs. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And for me, like I, so I had way back pre, pre kids I had, and it, it, you, it triggered for me with the overexertion part because it was always at a re- end of a running race when I would, I, I did start to le- have leakage 
And this was when I was like 18 years old and things like that. But it was when I was completely depleted, like you said, and now I'm realizing that that actually occurred. And so after, especially Clark, I, I was better at not bouncing back as hard as I did try to with Piper and my first. But the interesting thing is, um, fortunately with both, I didn't experience any tearing. Um, and so for me, and I'm sure other women who don't experience tearing, I figured I'm good to go. So starting at like two weeks, I'm especially with, um, Piper, I was better Clark because I'd met, I'd met Nikki (laughs) and she's like, stop doing this to your body. But especially (laughs) with my first, I went right back to the high intensity. And I think that that probably set me up for worse with, um, baby number two. So that like for, I guess, women who don't have, because when you don't have any vaginal tearing, I think the common misconception is, oh, you're good to go. And you don't even really need to abide by the guidelines of six weeks, because even for having sex, they do tell you that you might be able to have sex earlier than six weeks because you don't have any tearing or actual scars to heal or, you know, I guess, tearing to heal. Right. Yeah. And I think that it, it's a really common misconception um, and it nearly oftentimes even vaginal deliveries as a whole, whether they've had any tearing or not, are considered very um, normal and, you know, smooth recovery. Whereas a vaginal delivery can be a really significant thing for someone to have. And I think that that's why when we did the initial um, guidelines and return it to running, we didn't create a a section for this is what you do if you have a vaginal delivery, this is what you do if you have a cesarean section, because we wanted to highlight that actually women who have vaginal deliveries can have significant recovery needs, even in the absence of tearing, because sometimes like the significant stretch that occurs to our perineum in order to birth a baby, that's supposed to happen. Our bodies are amazing. Like it actually blows my mind sometimes when I think about what our bodies can do. They deliver a human baby and then, you know, and they're made for purpose and they can recover from that. But we need to honor the recovery process and we need to remember that they have been stretched and loaded. So even if you have a straightforward textbook delivery, there's reconditioning needs. And that's what I'm trying to highlight to everyone. And even throughout the body, because even if you're someone who was like, I stayed really active right up until I delivered. So I've been always really fit. You're going to have been moving differently at the end of your pregnancy. You're going to have been your center of gravity was was changed. You won't have been able to exert as much as you would have pre pregnancy and so there will be reconditioning needs for your whole body and that's why a great return to exercise is so important um but i think that's so interesting that even the hindsight's 2020 when we look back on things but the other thing i want to highlight is the huge pressure that's on women out there because they're like instagram and social media is great because it's given us a platform to really share information about pelvic health issues but there's also a negative side of it where women see these perfect lives and insta-perfect shots and people have had a baby two weeks ago or up in a bikini body. And sometimes I think it creates a, a misconception about what happens with pregnancy and delivery. And really, any of us who have babies, we all have a tummy after you have a baby. You've just housed a pregnancy and so your skin just doesn't snap back. You know, And I think we need to start to no- have conversations where we're normalizing women and their bodies and how great they are and honoring that stage of recovery and that recovery postpartum extends 12 months. 
So, you know, a lot of people don't even realize that, that even at 12 months postpartum, there are signs of recovery still going on in the abdominal wall when they've done ultrasound studies. So I think that's a really nice thing to remember if you're someone who's in that journey, putting pressure on yourself, feeling that you're not as far along as you thought you should be. It takes well over a year. Wow. I love that you're giving us like actual like data, especially. Tell us a little more because I get that question all the time, right? As a Pilates instructor who focuses in this area, the number, how long is it going to take me to heal my diastasis or diastasis? Mm-hmm. How how yeah. long is it going to take, you know, and it, everyone wants to know. And obviously it's an annoying answer because I'm saying, well, it depends, you know, like obviously it depends on each situation. But, you know, I think managing people's expectations is key. Um, and I remember Sinead telling me that it takes, an, somewhere in the research, it takes a minimum of three 20-minute workouts a week specific to core rehab to start to get some results. So, because people will go, well, I don't have any time. And I'm like, you don't need to work out, you know, five hours a week. So it's just helping people set these smaller goals for themselves as well. So please, can you talk a little bit more about, I'm just a nerd, more of this research, especially as it relates to timelines? <laughs> Yeah, so that was really, really exciting when we were doing the initial return into run and scope and review and looking for research to guide time scales because let's face it, our sports medicine world and all our athletes, um, particularly male sports, have lovely timelines for return to sport after an injury. So what are we doing to serve our women when they're going through huge events like childbirth and um, pregnancies? So we basically found that Following pregnancy, the levator ani, which is basically part of your pelvic floor, so it's a term for your pelvic floor, the levator ani muscles show signs of recovery still at the four to six month time frame. So that maybe you may be like yourself, Lexi, had a straightforward delivery, think of two weeks, you're fully healed. Well, actually, there's still signs of change going on there because there has been lengthening changes at the pelvic floor throughout that pregnancy. There has been load put on that pelvic floor throughout pregnancy. So we need to teach it how to recover and perform and do its function without that load and as it starts to adapt and return from that stretch. So it's all about, yeah, reconditioning. In terms of the abdominal wall, we had to extrapolate a little bit because they haven't done exact studies on cesarean section, but we were able to look at research about abdominal wall surgeries in general. And this demonstrated that abdominal wall incisions for abdominal surgeries are still showing signs of recovery, even at the seven to nine month time scale. So it's a huge expansion on that idea of the six week check. Now, this is not being said to debilitate women. Our bodies are pretty resilient. Like at six weeks, we do, for the most part, feel quite well. We might be totally recovered. We may have the odd wee symptom here or there, but we're feeling a lot better than we felt after we had the baby. And But it's just more a bit of a reality check that not to put too much pressure, not to try to skip steps and get back to really high performance exercise or exertional events. You will get there, but do the right steps with the right conditioning and the right graded exposure. So I always think if we decide that we're going to either I've only been doing walking for the first few weeks postpartum, now I'm going to try a run. The, it's not really sensible for me to go out and do a five kilometer run or five mile, five mile run. What I might do is a walk run program. So I'll do intervals of running and then walk in between intervals of running. And then I'll think about how I felt over the next day or so. And did I have any symptoms come on? Because symptoms are our way of telling us whether we were tolerating the load. So if I did a run and I experienced a little bit of leakage, or if I did a run and I experienced some heaviness or just a bulgy feeling in the vaginal area, it's nothing to panic about. 
but it might tell me that there's more reconditioning needs. And maybe I didn't really focus on my pelvic floor. I was told to do my Kegels after having the baby. I did them for about a week and then I stopped doing them. That might be the reality check that actually I'm going to really focus on doing those pelvic floor exercises. And I think when we're on that, why don't we talk a little bit about pelvic floor exercises? Because I often think that women do not fully understand how to do these. And as a pelvic health physiotherapist, I evaluate and I examine and see if someone's doing a pelvic floor exercise correctly within my clinic. And the majority of women come in to me and they say they've been doing those kegels and they don't work. And usually I'm right, okay. They've been doing them for years usually and they don't work. And I'm right, okay. Well, let's see if you've been doing them right. And people have definitely been doing them right. I've been told how to do them. And then when you examine, they're either clenching bum cheeks or they're only doing part of their pelvic floor and they're not getting it all in. So, and, and it's not surprising because what I do tell the women that I deal with is unlike other areas so Nikki even when you're doing when you're dealing with clients and you're doing exercise and you're demonstrating an exercise in front of someone they can usually see the body parts you're talking about they can watch you do it and then they can try and repeat it back and oftentimes I'm sure you'll appreciate that even though you've demonstrated in front of someone they often repeat it back wrong initially. So yep. like, even though we see and we understand the area. So I often find this, in, like even doing something simple like a biceps or a weight exercise with someone, you demonstrate it, they, they're in front of you. They're like, yeah, they understand that. And they go to do it back and you're like, no, no, sorry, we'll go, we'll go again. How then do we expect women to know how to do their pelvic floor in the area of a body that they don't see, they don't really understand in their mind's eye what it looks like or what it does, and they get a sheet of paper with a wee description on it. So I do think that women, you need to not worry if you don't know how to do pelvic floor because it's, we're setting you up to fall, basically. And that's why pelvic health physiotherapists exist. But I like women to think of the pelvic floor like a bowl because oftentimes our information sheets look like it's a sling of muscle or just a wee hammock from front to back. But really, it's a nice bowl shape across the bottom of our pelvic outlet. And we want all of it to draw in. So we don't just want to squeeze around the front because we're someone who leaks urine and that's where we think we need to concentrate. Really, we need to get all the pelvic floor from the back end. So I like women to think of a zip from their back passage to their front passage and think of closing that zip up fully. That works for the majority of women, but no one cue works for everyone. So other people might relate better to stopping wind. We all have wind. So if you knew wind was coming, how would you stop it? Can you also stop the flow of urine? And the odd woman likes the idea of a jellyfish. So if you imagine a jellyfish swimming, it closes and rises up at the same time. So that can be a nice kind of cue for your pelvic floor. But on that, I'm going to stop hogging the mic in a minute. But on no, that, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> how many people are giggling right now? By the way, <laughs> oh, I hope I hope everybody's giggling. And the, fun fact. You're doing it right if no one can tell you're doing it because if you're going up and down on a chair, oh. you're doing your bum cheeks. Mm-hmm. So Fun me fact. just sitting here like this is not yeah. right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's not right. You might be doing some degree of your pelvic floor, but you're not really homing in it. And you're doing more of your glutes and your bum cheeks. So you'll have nice, you'll have a nice bum, right. but but you might not stop be able to stop that leak when you go to cough or sneeze or exercise. So right. I want everyone to think that kegels are not supposed to be as easy as they're made sound. So oftentimes we get told to do them and it's like do 10 quick flicks when you're chatting to someone or feeding the baby. But really for muscles to experience change, they need to undergo some degree of tissue overload. Like, you know, it's a bit, it's a bit, it has to be maximal effort. And so really I want women to think of closing that zip fully and let go fully and do that again and let go fully. And really, as you go through those reps of drawing in fully, you should actually be starting to find that's getting a bit 
tough to do. It's actually quite hard. So comes reps eight, nine, and 10, you should be finding you're glad for a break coming up because if you find that you did 10 quick flicks and it was really easy, you're probably only doing 60% or less and you're not maybe getting those changes that we want. Um, so there's two types of pelvic floor to do, the quick flicks that I've been talking about and then the slow holes are for your endurance fibers and your endurance fibers are the ones that enable you to You've got, you get the urge to go to the toilet. You're in a long car journey. Can you get home um, to get the toilet? Or are you getting that sudden urge that is making you want to go now? So we want to get those endurance fibers um, strengthened up. And you basically close the zip or whatever cue works for you. Do the jellyfish, hold it in fully for a count of 10 is what you're aiming for. Don't worry if you can't get there yet, you will eventually. Um, but you want to do 10 of them. So 10 for 10 is tough. Okay. So I want everyone for the rest of the podcast to be doing their 10 for 10s. Yes. <laughs> 10 for 10. I love that. I'm going to make that a hashtag. Everything also sounds better and more beautiful <laughs> with your accent. <laughs> oh, <Right>? thank you. <laughs> Never heard pelvic floor exercises sound so good. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and you, you, so I, one of the questions we have here for you, Grania, is what do you wish more women knew about the perinatal pelvic floor? And I think you've already covered so much of this with the 10 for 10 with, you know, the quick flicks, with making sure that you're waiting properly and you're you're progressively loading and you're not just going back at six weeks. You know, is there anything else that you, you find yourself repeating to your patients when they see you in clinic? Yeah, so you should be able to feel your pelvic floor draw in and let go in the same way as if you think your biceps muscle, you can bend your arm in you can let it go there should be a range of motion as such and for some women particularly if we've had quite a traumatic vaginal delivery or even if we've had a psychologically traumatic birth experience we can end up having a situation where our pelvic floor is actually quite tight so it's nearly that it's held in and we've forgotten how to let go of it and um, so it's like having your biceps held in all the time and if you think about that if that was held in all day and you didn't let go of it one it's not very functional you can't use it to lift and two if I was to touch it it'd be tender so for any women who are having unexplained pelvic pain in the kind of vaginal area or the saddle region and um, if you're having pain with intercourse or finding intercourse is impossible and that was never an issue it could be that you have a bit of a hypertonic pelvic floor which is nothing to worry about but may be beneficial to get a referral to your local pelvic health or women's health physiotherapist and um, just so that you can learn that neuromuscular control to let go again because again it's not as easy as just telling you we'll let go of your pelvic floor because if you don't have that awareness of what your pelvic floor is or how it got in in the first place you don't really have the awareness of how to let go right uh that's a big problem, I think. And then, of course, women blame themselves or they're told if they're having pain with sex, oh, just have some wine. Oh, <laughs> or just be mad. Yeah. I know. And you know what? If we talk about sex in that context, sex should be considered in a biopsychosocial context. So there's our big word for the day again, because like sex shouldn't just be a physical thing. It shouldn't be just a case of, oh, just have some wine so that something can actually penetrate in. Like that's the physical side of things and someone problem solving and saying, just make a fit. Whereas someone, ha you know what I mean? Whereas women should be one, they should be in the mood for it. And that's how they get their arousal because they need to produce those vaginal lubrications. And if they're not, someone could be breastfeeding. And even though they are in the mood, they're not producing enough of those that vaginal lubrication. And what do you do if something feels like it's sore going in? You're going to clamp down more. So if you don't source the root cause or root problem of why that pain is occurring, you're just 
in a cycle that you can't break and no woman should have to have painful intercourse I'm, I'm a big believer in like it should be it should be an enjoyable process and something that you want to do so if anyone is having any symptoms of uh, pelvic pain during intercourse you're not alone it's a very very common experience and it's often something women don't complain about because because it's very taboo it's quite awkward to go and complain of something to do with intercourse but it's a phys- it's a problem that that there's rehabilitation specialists for, so don't be afraid to access it. Yeah, thank so you important. I, and I, so I want to ask, so because around the kind of, I guess, in the biopsychosocial, the psycho part would be relating, relating to the brain, right? And, and the mental stressors and things like that. So you've talked about how it could impact like leakage when running, and then also now with sex and, and return to sex, which can be I think that was a really eye-opening experience for me because I didn't realize how nervous I would be going into the first time. And you can imagine, I guess you said, like clenched and really, you know, those stressors impact your pelvic floor. So can you talk more about that? Because I, so for example, also when I had Clark, we had just locked down in uh, three days after he was born, we locked down, I closed all of my wax on locations. And it was, and now I'm just, it's all kind of eye opening to me because I'm recognizing all of the factors that probably contributed to my postpartum leakage. Um, can you just talk more about those more mental stressors and how they impact the pelvic floor and why? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And the psychological well-being of any man or woman is so important because it really can have an impact on our physical well-being and physical presentations. And I usually like to start with the psychological well-being right back at pregnancy and delivery because, first of all, women are at high risk of perinatal depression. So we used to commonly just think of postpartum depression, but actually we know that women, while they're pregnant, can start to experience these um, feelings. And, and that can be so out of your control. It can be to do with hormonal factors. It can be do with just the navigating change. There's so many challenges to us as women. But particularly then if we go into a delivery experience that we didn't find to be pleasant. So normally I think any of us who are going into delivery have an idea that we want delivery to go a certain way. We want it to be a lovely experience, nice and calm, and we want to maybe breathe the baby out. But as we all know, birth doesn't always go to ideal plans. And that's why we can have a birth plan, but we have to be willing to shift out of it. But I think it's really important that no matter how your birth story goes, that you have a team around you that you feel supported by, because all too often I meet women who may on paper have a really straightforward either vaginal or abdominal delivery. So everything was textbook perfect, but they are very traumatized by that delivery experience. And it could be that they just felt so out of control. It could be that the hospital environment was quite scary for them and no one explained anything. You know, as women, I think that there can be a lot of things poking and prodding that goes on to you and no one's really <laughs> outlining what they're doing that for or why they, or what this means. And there's there might be a CTG beeping and it can be a very stress-inducing situation. So, If you are someone who's had a birth and you have a really negative, traumatic experience of it, it's really important that you are not afraid to get help for that because that can affect you going on. And oftentimes, I know in the UK, they do birth debriefs now where you can meet with your care center and you can go through your birth notes and just go through how things um, progressed and why decisions were made. And sometimes that's really healing to people because it makes them understand once they understand, they're like, okay, that makes sense. And they can let go of stuff. And um, for a personal experience, 
I had four textbook perfect deliveries, right? But two of them were induced. Um, so I had two spontaneous deliveries and I had two inductions of labor um, at 37 weeks because I had um, obstetricolestasis, which means my liver functions go off during pregnancy. And as someone who likes to walk around, do my own thing and breathe the baby out, I found the induction of labor deliveries much different. I found that idea of one, I'm not going into delivery myself. I'm being induced. I find that it a bit artificial. I found that because of that, I was restricted in how much I'm allowed to move because they wanted to monitor the baby. And it was, I found the labor and contractions much more difficult because I probably psychologically wasn't ready for this and how that did that feed into my physical experience? Who knows? But um, I remember after that finding one of the experiences more difficult than the other. And it turned out that they were quite short staffed in my care center. And um, I, uh, there was probably things that should have happened that weren't been happening. But the day after my delivery, one of the lead um, midwives came in to me with my notes. Now, and I never asked for a birthday brief. I kind of probably thought I'd be grand and it'll get over it. But she went through my notes and was like, look, there's a few things I'd like to explain. Everything's worked out perfect. But, you know, really, we were short staffed and this should have happened sooner. This should have happened sooner. And I remember thinking, oh, that's really nice. It was it was actually quite healing for me to hear that they were acknowledging that there was um, maybe things that were overlooked. And so I've never had any traumatic experience from it, but that could have went a completely different way if I that hadn't been explained to me. So it's re- it just goes to show you the difference between, even though things are textbook the same, my experience of different deliveries was very different. Wow. I'm just, I hear birth stories almost every day, Grania, and I'm just like feeling for you so much because so many women don't get that validation and don't get that explanation and are left feeling at their wits end and comparing themselves to people who are like, well, you know, I had a vaginal birth. I didn't have tearing. I should be happy. You know, what's wrong with me? So I think this is so powerful what you're saying. And I agree so much. So much. And I, I was induced and that with my might first be- and not second. And it was, I, I'm, you're I, making me open my eyes to so many experiences I've had that I actually haven't recognized for myself yet. Um, because it's the same with my second, I didn't, I wasn't induced and it was, you know, if you could say a beautiful, like it was how I would, how I would have wanted it. Um, and with Piper, it was, you know, potentially going to be a C-section. Like it was a lot of things happening very quickly because she came quickly, but being induced, it's a different it's just a different setup mentally for you that you're not necessarily expecting. And I think that so many women don't give themselves enough credit of that and the impact that it then has. And, and then linking to your body and your pelvic floor, like it's, there's so much there. Yeah. And to take it back to what you're saying, how does that affect your recovery? So if I, if, if you're someone who's had a traumatic delivery and you then either have some post-traumatic stress from the event or you enter into post-natal um, depression, you're not probably going to be very motivated to do those kegels that someone told you to do. Um, you're maybe not, you know, there's a lot of things you're going to be, you're not maybe going to be sleeping that well and getting that because sleep's so important for recovery. And then how well are you organizing nutrition or asking for help so that you're getting it? So it it starts off a whole sequelae of situations that then go against your recovery. So that's part of how it might might impact. But also too, we know with cortisol and how the hormonal changes that occur with stress, that affects how our physical presentation is. That could affect the healing, it could slow down the healing process. It could just, and on the flip side of it, some women deal with mental health issues. So whether it's sort of 
birth trauma or postnatal depression, they deal with it by throwing themselves into exercise. Exercise becomes a coping strategy. And while exercise is good, there can be excessive exercise behaviors. So then women are really overly exerting themselves, doing way too much exercise. That's depleting their energy reserves. And um, it's also meaning that they're losing weight. They're, you know, they're nearly, they're nearly being detrimental to their body as a coping strategy. So that's something to also to be really aware of. So much there. It's so, yeah. And thank you for bringing up both sides, right? Either under training or over training, right? Because it's, they're both an issue. I always say it's like the Goldilocks thing. We have to find that perfect, happy medium. <laughs> it's not Love easy. That. That's a really it's good one. <laughs> um, okay. So I, we, we'd love to talk a little bit. I would love to talk a little bit more about. Um, diastasis. And I love how you say diastasis doesn't have to be disastrous. <laughs> I love that. Um, you know, where is the research going in this area? And I also wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of breastfeeding. I know that's like two big questions, but I wanted to say them before I forget to ask you on this episode. Okay, so I love all things diastasis, and it's again, it's one of my clinical and research interests, and uh, it fits perfectly with the population that I predominantly serve, which is postpartum women, because diastasis is basically abdominal separation, and some degree of separation at our outer abdominal wall is completely natural. Like that's what that connective tissue is there for. So we have our rectus muscles, which are our six pack muscles, and we have a seam of connective tissue down the middle, and it's there for a reason, so that we can expand our abdominal wall and house a baby, and then um, deliver it and return. But for reasons that we don't fully understand yet, about one third of women have persisting quite significant diastasis and that can have huge implications for their not just their physical function but also body image self-confidence how they feel because nobody wants to have a mommy tummy or to feel like they still look pregnant after having a baby and you know a lot of these women experience people asking them when they're due when they maybe are carrying a six month or eight month old child and you know it's it's, it's something that really impacts their quality of life the research, like many areas, has been lacking, but thankfully in the last few years, there's more strides to fill this gap. And actually, we mentioned Sinead Defer um, earlier, and she's one of the huge inspirations in this field, and she they created some expert consensus um, guidelines a couple of years ago, which have been really, really welcome. But um, basically, I've been involved in some research with the ASTAS as well, and fitting with today's trend, it tends to fall more in that biopsychosocial line of things because we're trying to create an outcome measure specific for diastasis that captures the whole picture and how it impacts you. So not just looking at interrectal distance or the width of the gap. Um, we're trying to see how diastasis affects someone's body image, maybe their sex life, um, how they're fitting in clothes, whether they want to go to places that involve you getting undressed, like whether they pull away from things like swimming pools and things where someone might see them. Um, so we were in the process of validating a questionnaire that was first created in Spanish and then translated and we're testing it. So that's the first thing. We want to make sure that people are aware that it's it's a biopsychosocial condition. Um, and we also want to make people aware that there's a lot you can do about it. And we've become a lot less cautious about diastasis over the years. I think back to when I first started in pelvic health and I was probably telling people to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop doing everything. And now when I look back, it makes no sense because I might have been stopping them doing bending or sitting up, but they have to sit up to get a baby in the middle of the night. And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it doesn't add up to the lifestyle they need to live. Women need to be strong. They need to be resilient. They need to be able to move. Um, 
So we now understand that diastasis is about much more than just the gap and we have to strengthen the entire abdominal wall and recondition it. And one of the really interesting things that we're trying to understand more about is what exactly are we feeling when we measure the gap? Because we currently thought that it was just that connective tissue, so that linea alba. But now we're starting to wonder if some of it is, are, are we measuring more than just the linea alba? Because studies have shown the linea alba tissue on um, dissected bodies. It doesn't actually move in that transverse plane. Like it's very rigid and stiff and resistant to movement. It is more movement in the longitudinal plane, which makes sense because that's the stretch with pregnancy. But we may be finding that women are having significant wasting of their rectus abdominis muscles throughout pregnancy because you get to the point where you can't sit up, you've got a bump there. So if you don't use a muscle, you do lose muscle bulk in it. So initially, are we feeling some empty rectus sheaths? So I know this is getting quite technical for anyone who is like, what is she talking about? I'm so excited right now. I love it. (laughs) So rectus sheaths are just literally like the sausage film that muscle is contained in. They're just like, I always like to think of a sausage. And if you ever think of a sausage that you may have got that had a bit of extra spare film, like they didn't quite fill it the whole thing with sausage. So there's a bit of a area that had no meat in it. Sometimes I think that that might be some of what we're measuring when we're measuring interrectal distance because some of the muscle wastes away. And so we're, we're feeling a gap into anywhere that we can press into. And then, that, and that's why I think there's there's different responses to diastasis. I'm sure, um, Nikki, you can appreciate you have some women who have the same diastasis starting point. So they may have a four finger width gap and you give them the same sort of rehab and one comes back and suddenly there are two or less. The other one has still done the same rehab, but may still be a four. Is the difference between that, that one of those was a four finger width, but it included some rectus wasting. So when they started exercising again, the rectus bulks up. Okay. Mm-hmm. Whereas the other one could have been just, just linea alba stretching. So we need more research to investigate that, but that's what I propose. But that's getting very technical. Women don't actually need to know that. All you need to know is that you don't need to be afraid of diastasis. You need to learn about how to move and what muscles to strengthen. And it's all about the right load at the right time. And mm. no set one set exercises will um, be the answer for everybody's problem. It's usually to do with how you're moving and what muscles need addressed. Um, and that's why I like to think to say, see someone and make sure that you're progressively moving forward and not being restricted. Yeah, I I spend a lot of my time convincing women that the movements we're teaching are safe for them. (laughs) Yeah, but fear of movement that we talked about with running has also been demonstrated in the literature for diastasis. So women are afraid to move with diastasis. And I think we've created that. I think like including myself, when I think back 10 years ago and telling women not to move and not to do sit-ups and things, that message out there made them afraid because then mm-hmm. suddenly they're doing a sit up at home without thinking of it. And then they're, they're nearly getting the guilt that they've caused this. And that, you know, so we need to make sure that we're making women strong so that they are resilient for being a mom, because they're going to have to lift. They're going to have to, they're going to have maybe one or two kids, you know, it's just impossible not to be functional. It's amen to that. Okay. Breastfeeding. <laughs> Oh yeah. Breastfeeding is a great topic. Breastfeeding is one of those ones that I, I'm quite interested in because we're when we're being brought through our training and things and just in healthcare in general, you often hear breastfeeding being thrown out there as a reason why people are getting either pain or injuries or diastasis or prolapse. And it's usually blamed on the culprit of relaxing. And I'm sorry to tell everyone who's saying that, but 
the studies have demonstrated that relaxing levels are actually not um, any different in the women who are symptomatic and the women who aren't symptomatic. It's not likely to be one hormone on its own, but more likely the generalized hormonal conditions that someone's under. And we know from the research that not all women who are breastfeeding will experience laxity at their tissues, but some might. And so it's a very individualized process. And again, it comes down to that biopsychosocial and looking at the woman in front of you and what are all the factors feeding into her risk for joint laxity. So the way I think of it is if someone has a baseline of being hypermobile, yes, the hormonal change of breastfeeding may be enough to actually influence that. Whereas for the majority of us, we won't have any compromise. Um have you had what's your what's your thoughts on it Nikki like where have you where do you sit with breastfeeding or what questions do you have I mean I get asked this all the time people say well I don't want to worry too much about my heaviness yet because I'm still breastfeeding and there's this hope that once they stop nursing that they're going to see improvements in their tissue that they're going to be able to get better results from their fitness program that their diastasis will improve so you know and and often I'll say it might <laughs> yeah, you know, but that doesn't mean I don't want you to con- stop doing the rehab, like keep doing it. But yeah, you know, and I get that. Like I'm still nursing. I have a 16 month old, and you know, and I'm I'm tired, and I know <laughs> I'm not. I don't have the same muscles, and I'm not teaching as much because of the situation with the pandemic. So I notice myself, like, ah, oh, I'm I'm feeling same weight, but I'm definitely feeling I lack some of the strength that I had after my first baby. And I also like personally wonder, you know, when I stop nursing, is this going to get better? Like, you know, it's, you just, you hope for the future. So I guess that's where a lot of people are coming from. I do think it's a really good question. And I do think there will be some influence because I think if we are in any state where we're affecting hormones in our body, there's going to be some systems and processes impacted. And I mentioned earlier that women who are breastfeeding often experience vaginal dryness, and that's because there's lower levels of estrogen while we're breastfeeding. And estrogen is a really important um, component or um, makeup for bones and tissues and muscles. So it could be, you know, you could be someone who is experiencing, well, yeah, actually, I know that my muscle makeup isn't the same, but, you know, I'm still breastfeeding. And you could have a different response afterwards. But equally, there could be someone else who does, who's breastfeeding at the same point to the same frequency. And just because of other factors feeding into their systems, their, their muscle health wasn't compromised. Um, I'm trying to think myself, cause I breastfed all my kids and it's funny because, you know, even one of the f- reasons that breastfeeding can be so attractive to women is because if, of its caloric expenditure. Mm-hmm. And it does help us um, for the majority of us, it does help us lose some of our postpartum weight gain and all of us gain weight during pregnancy and that's normal. And we do want to shift that afterwards. But funny, I was one of those people and probably because when you're sitting and you're pinned, I'm one of those people who when I'm sitting, I'm just going to eat. So <laughs> I find I find that breastfeeding, I put on weight. And then as soon as I stop breastfeeding, because then I'm more active and free, I, I lost weight. So it's that's the individual component to it. So while for the majority of people, they will, because of the energy expenditure and caloric um, count of breastfeeding, they will lose weight. But there'll always be those outliers like me who are like, um, <laughs> and, and, and exceeding that calorie intake. So so it's just, that's why I want to say there's no hard, fast rules. You have to look at the individual in front of you, what they're doing and what all factors are, are impacting. 
It's true. I love that. <laughs> and I think a lot of people have also said, well, why is it, you know, even in comments on posts that I made, people getting upset were like, well, I couldn't, you know, lose the baby weight until I stopped breastfeeding. So I've heard both sides as well, for sure. Yeah. I never even <laughs> craved sugar like as much during my pregnancy until I was breastfeeding. And then I was like, give me all the candy cake like, yeah. I can get. Yeah. So I, I can see that for sure. So, okay. Can we talk now compression shorts? Yeah. Because you gotta love them. And now you're doing research on compression shorts. So can you fill us in on what you're working on and how it links to the impact of the pelvic pelvic floor? Yeah. So my interest in compression shorts really developed when, you know, over the years we've seen compression shorts come to the market targeting women and um, supporting the pelvic floor. And this got me thinking because, again, a lot of what I do is compared to sports medicine. And we know that um, our footballers and our high performance, particularly male athletes, all have nice recovery compression garments and that helps their performance. So we need to honor women with the same sort of um, consideration. So I started to look at what compression garments may or may not be doing. Now, there's I'm researching the EVB brand, which is an Irish engineer, Yvonne Brady, and she's fantastic. And But there's multiple brands in the market. So there's the SRC recovery shorts and there's other ones in brands in Australia. And I think that it's really, really interesting to see all these um, products serving women. Avon's um, shorts have research um, out of some of the universities in Ireland, which show subjectively that when women were wearing the shorts, they experienced less leakage and less symptoms of prolapse. So those are subjective type questionnaires. And there will always be an element of could that have been a placebo when someone's reporting it? So is it because someone was told they're wearing targeted compression garments and it feels a bit snug that suddenly they feel like they might not be leaking as much or maybe more supported? So I decided to see if we can get any objective data as to what's going on. So I just got my ethical approval through. So I'm doing my master's study as part of my um, master's in advancing practice. And we're doing a feasibility study to investigate whether compression shorts have any mechanical impact on the pelvic floor. So I'm actually measuring bladder neck height with ultrasound on the same women when they have the shorts on and then off in both lying and standing. I did two test cases to see if there was any potential in research in this. And the two test cases showed that there was a higher bladder neck height, which is really promising. But I have to check that they weren't the two outliers like me eating and not losing weight during breastfeeding. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, was it two flukes or is this a pattern? And But it has really positive ramifications if we can show something. Because if you think about it, we were bras and sports bras for our breasts women then go and have babies and then they just go and jump about and do whatever and nobody considers this pelvic floor which has been stretched and then went back and I just think that we need to know more to support the pelvic floor and for anyone who leaks out there there'll be some people who this resonates with if you leak with a cough or sneeze some women will have figured out that if no one's about and they actually grab their gusset and they go to cough then they can stop the leak and that's that manic, mechanical like compression. They're not squeezing the urethra themselves, but there's some response. They're obviously putting pressure on the perineum or the or the front of the pelvic floor, and that's getting the muscles to do something. So that's essentially what I'm trying to investigate: is is these shorts providing that sort of response, and then putting women in a more favorable position to then jump about and have that response that they need from their pelvic floor. Well, it's even crossing your legs when you sneeze. Like everyone, I just saw a TikTok exactly. yesterday, someone, and it has like in minutes it has like two over 2000 views because it's just someone a woman sneezing and crossing her legs like when she sneezes and is like who feels me kind of thing 
but it's also that, right? Wouldn't that be like similar compression? Yes. Yeah, they're trying to, they're closing over and they're getting some change at those tissues. So I do think that there's something to it, but we'll know more um, in a few months time when I've got, but wait, wait, you'd hear this for a fun fact. I was a wee bit worried when I went to recruitment because I was like, will I struggle? And I'm going to have to really, you know, put out calls for recruitment because who's going to want to come and get scanned? I have, I filled it within 24 hours. So like I've got full recruitment within 24 hours. Now I'm only doing 20 women, but still um, it was, it just went out and I didn't have to advertise anymore. So there's, I'm loving the fact that we're in a stage of the world now where women are really interested in finding out more and helping develop our understanding of this area. And, you know, it's less taboo. Like women are not afraid to turn up and say, I'm, I'm enrolling in this because I want to find out X, Y, or Z. 100%. Oh, thank you for all of the work you're doing. I wish I could come and meet you in Ireland. I want to be part of your study. <laughs> oh, I would love that. <laughs> Same. Sign me up. Oh, man. That's, but you know amazing. what? If in a few years, if, if it shows something promising, I may do further research on a bigger scale. So, you know, I might, I might come looking for using Canada <laughs> for, for a multi center study. <laughs> amazing. It's necessary. It's very necessary. And I, I'm going to make sure that um, women know. I'd heard about the SRC shorts, but not the EVB shorts. So yeah, that's great. I think we need to to have more of that over here because it's it's clearly and it's clearly a big issue. I mean, yeah. And also, I just love that you used the word gusset. I don't think I've ever heard that. <laughs> I was like, gusset? Is that I've made it up. No, that's a... I've, Lexi, have you heard that word before? Yes, but uh, but probably from... Amy, my Irish friend. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, basically, it's your crotch, right? Like, yeah, oh, it's, like, it's probably okay. like Irish mommy. Uh, like, is it, it like like undercarriage or something too? Is it that? Yeah, one? undercarriage, uh, undercarriage, gusset. gusset. Your gusset, gusset area of your trousers, and um, your your saddle region is another <laughs> saddle region. You know, we're being really polite. Saddle region, gusset. So I'm good. just gonna. I think it sounds so much nicer than crotch. You know? Yeah. <laughs> way, way nicer. I mean, everything is. Yeah. It's so much better. This has been so much fun. Is there any like final kind of thoughts or, or you know, words that you want to leave the listeners with um, just around any anything really pelvic floor? I mean, we really ended up covering. We're like, okay, let's chat running. And it's like, no, we're going everywhere, which is <laughs> what we do. And we go there. So I love it. So any final words that you want to leave uh, with our listeners? Yeah. So hopefully with all that we've delved into today, because the conversation has been really good and I hope that everyone can see how even from a day-to-day basis, our situations may change in terms of all the factors feeding into our health and well-being. So even if you're someone who got back to exercise and were symptom-free and then suddenly you go for a run or something and you find you're leaking or you had a bit of pain or something, don't panic. Um, you know, think about your life circumstances. Is it that, you know what, actually I have, my baby's been teething and I haven't had a night's sleep all week because that could be enough to be the difference. Um, so it's, it's have a look at that. But if you're not getting anywhere and the situation doesn't change, I'm hugely passionate about making sure women know that they can access help. So do go to uh, any health professional who specializes in this area so that you can figure out what your specific needs are. And I want everyone to know how important doing pelvic floor exercises are, even if you're symptom-free, because you most likely will have reconditioned needs if you've had a baby. Um, and yeah, just even leaving people understanding that despite a lot of the symptoms we've talked about today, 
women's bodies are really resilient. And if you think about the way, like, like we're at the stage um, of the world where, yes, we're getting a lot more research focus and a lot more interest and a lot more people educating on pelvic health. But up until this point, women have survived and they've done it and they've managed to get on with life without any help and understanding of knowing this area. So think about what's going to happen over the next 10 years when we start to understand more and we start to get the same consideration as sports medicine. And I'm not being I'm not being anti-males, but there's a bit of a feminist in me. But, you know, how how the males have all this um, support in their sports. So I'm trying to get women more support in their sport of motherhood. I love that. Oh, that's perfect. You're amazing. You're amazing. <laughs> <These> are amazing. <laughs> you guys are. Conversation. This is like flown by, really. And you have your own podcast. So at your we service, do. right? Love yeah, the name. That's so good. My pal Emma Brockwell. So yeah, Emma and me have the podcast. And we, yeah, we, we were wondering what people think it's a bit cheeky, but we like the fact that at the end of it, we go, and this is Emma and Gronia at your cervix. <laughs> so, <laughs> So, but again, it's similar. We like that idea. I love the name of your podcast. And I love the fact that you want to go to those conversations people are not having, but should be having and need to have. So um, I share your ethos. And you know what? We will be honored to get you on to our podcast at some stage. So I'm, I'm putting you on the spot on, on online to say you are coming on our podcast. Fun. We'd love it. Yeah. At your cervix. Sign your us up. Cervix. Yeah, totally. And then you can also... Um, we will include everything at Absolute Physio, um, your website, your Facebook page, a return to writing postpartum guidelines. All of that will be included in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been absolute pleasure and so informative for, I know, all of our listeners. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it so much. Amazing. All right. Bye, Bye for now. now. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at WeGoTherePodcast and check out WeGoTherePodcast.com for more info.